0: Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson and many of you have probably run into or know of people who have run into situations where businesses need to be valued and these are not public companies like Apple and so therefore the valuation is not always um, apparent on its face and for those sorts of situations you need somebody who is a special type of somebody who knows exactly what they're doing and to talk about that I have Richard Claywell who happens to be just that kind of guy. So Richard thank you so much for joining me. Well
1: thank you for having me I appreciate
0: it. All the way from Houston so if it, now that now that people have heard your voice they'll know the reason for your the sound of your voice
1: <laughs> yeah I'm told I speak with an accent but i I don't hear the accent but I'm told that I do
0: no no i uh, I went to law school in Lubbock and I remember um, the first day that I showed up at tech there was a a, a lady in the administrative office you know you kind of had to go in and check in I remember she had the. Thickest yeah. West Texas accent. And I had to try to not laugh because <laughs> it sounded like she was like trying, you know, really yeah. trying to play up this really thick West Texas accent, which, of course, I found out that was not true. That's just the yeah. way. She and many people there speak. Right. Um, but it, it's uh, it's a little bit disarming, I think, for people who are not from that part of the country because there's uh, you know there's sort of some popular culture association with a, a thick southern accent, like it's supposed to be like a bunch of rednecks who yeah who don't know anything, which of course is total nonsense. Yeah. Um, yeah there was you know plenty of people at Texas Tech who could run circles around me intellectually, so <laughs> didn't matter how they spoke. There you go. Well, give me a, at least for. For people who don't know you, uh, Richard, the high level, who are you at the high level CV?
1: I, my my name's Richard Claywell and I'm a certified public accountant. But I tell people that we don't do accounting work and, and we really don't do accounting work. What we do is we value closely held businesses. And a lot of that is is in the planning area and a lot of it is in the litigation area. We also do economic damages. And we do fraud and forensic type of work, and that's that's what my practice is limited to. So again, uh, I'm CPA, but, but we don't do CPA work. Which kind of when I when I tell people that is, well, what are you talking about? You don't do CPA work? Uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> <it's just laughs> you did you get kicked out of the profession or something?
1: Is exactly right. <laughs> so that that's a me in a, in a nutshell. And and we testify in court if we need to. I don't have a problem testifying. I actually think it's a lot of fun to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, but, but we do testify if we need to do that.
0: How did you get into that kind of work? And you, you've mentioned you've got that CPA background. Did you jump straight into this area? Were you doing more public accounting before?
1: Years and years and years ago, I, I was a uh, controller of a public company, and I did not have any real public accounting experience. So I left there, went to work for a CPA firm. I was drawn back into industry for a company that had 21 subsidiaries. The guy that owned the company, he liked to buy and sell companies, so he sent me to some classes to learn how to do that. One of his companies was an oil and gas company, and it it was taking all these 21 companies and was taking them down, and they're no longer in business. So before it went down, I, I left and started my own practice, and I was in practice doing the traditional accounting work for about a year. And I had an attorney call me and asked me if I could value a refinery. Uh, well, sure, that's not a major problem, and uh, just haven't looked back, just done it ever since.
0: <laughs> did you? Were you anticipating that sort of a fork in your career, or did it it just kind of happened
1: it, by it chance? Might- it, it blindsided me. I, I enjoyed the, the accounting work. I mean, mm-hmm. it was not that big a deal. Uh, but I had an interest in that, and that just really perked my interest to get involved with the valuation piece of it. So I just started buying books on how do you do this? And this is in the. Uh, early 80s late 70s there's very very little written about how you do this sort of thing so i was you know trying to get as much information as i could just reading all this stuff studying this uh eventually more and more information came around uh, and so I, I started you know trying to get in touch with attorneys that do this kind of work and let them know that we did that and uh and again today that's that's all we do is that type of work i really enjoy it
0: yeah i think that's so good and i think that's such a great um Lesson for anybody who's listening to this and maybe doesn't um, doesn't have a niche in their pro- in their professional practice or business or where they're thinking about changing a niche is that the thing that you just mentioned there about getting books and then reading up on it. You know, I'm assuming that that's something you had to do in your spare time because you still had a day job doing the other work. It's not like you could just quit the other work and then focus hundred percent on that.
1: Yeah, I, I had a day job, uh, which was the traditional work. And so my nighttime job was to do a lot of reading. And, and what was happening, we were picking up valuation engagements and I, and I thought this was kind of interesting. We, we I was working on tax returns or accounting work, and I would have an evaluation question, and so I was spending time researching that. You know, during the day when I picked up evaluation engagement, and we started doing more and more of it. And and what I realized is I was I had changed where I was doing research on tax issues, and I knew that the conversion was was in process because I was not spending nearly as much time, if any, researching evaluation issues. But now I'd gone back and was researching tax issues. So that that told me that uh, I need to get off a of dead center. I've either got to go back and do taxes and you know the accounting work, or I've got to do the valuation. And I just really enjoyed the valuation. So right, got rid of the clients and off we went.
0: Yeah, I think it's great. They call that now a side hustle because you always have to reinvent something that already exists in the world and then put a new word on it and then pretend that you have meant you created it right that's that's a side hustle yeah no i think that's just the, i think that's just the way it is though i i'm i'm um i get asked from time to time by lawyers about you know how how to develop a, a niche practice or how to develop a particular expertise right. and the thing i tell them is you either get up early in the morning or you stay up a little later at night and you work on it yeah. for a long period of time after hours because it it kind of has to become your hobby because, right. of course, you still have to work and you, know, you still have to pay your bills. But right. that's the way it's done. There's no other way.
1: Yeah, this this was not an overnight issue. I mean, it took years uh, for that to develop and for attorneys to know that uh, here's what I do uh, and that we're not doing the traditional CPA type of work. So it's it's uh-huh. not happen overnight.
0: Yeah. What do you think about uh, the the sort of future prospects of that practice then do you think it's a, a an area of the world that is primed for growth or or you think it's it's going to be it's going to be hitting headwinds in the future.
1: I I think the industry is is primed for growth. Mm-hmm. What's happening? What I believe is more and more people, if they if they want to buy a business, is what is it worth? They uh, I talked to a guy last week and he's looking at buying a company. And I've got another client that's that's trying to sell a company. Actually, I got two of those. And uh, the issue is, what's it worth? And so, a lot of times we come across a business broker, and I'm not here to talk bad about business brokers, but, but they will go out and find a rule of thumb and say that your company is worth X. So, that means that your company that you're either buying or selling agrees to, or is it almost exactly like the average of the industry that's out there. So, is the, your company, is it better performing or is it performing less than the industry is so those types of issues need to be addressed if not you're probably going to overpay or underpay uh, for the value of the business so you need some expertise to take a look at that i think that's more and more people are becoming more aware that they probably should do that another problem with our industry is if, if, if you look at my head look at my hair you'll see it's it's not dark brown anymore so there's a trend where older guys are, are starting to retire. And, and I really enjoy this. Uh, I, I don't want to go home and argue over the remote for the t- television set at home with my wife. That's I, I'm going to lose that battle. So I'm just not even going to get involved with it. So there's a trend. Uh, you may have a health issue, or, or maybe a death. You know, you may die or whatever. And the the accounting type, the appraisal type people that that are already close to retirement are not going to take the years of training it takes to get from point A to point B. So you've got to get a younger group of people in. Uh, I recently it was this year uh, I hired a, a uh, accounting student just right out of college. He is working on a certified valuation analyst designation so, trying to train him uh, so he understands what's going on. The, The problem with that training process is it's going to take at least two years to get your feet on the ground to really understand what it is we do. There is, if you do a tax return, there's a lot of repetition. A tax return is a tax return is a tax return. On the business valuation piece of it or in the damages or the fraud, every one of them is different. There's some basic concepts, but but you have to really put on your thinking cap to figure out what's going on. So it, there's there's a long learning curve to figure out what we're trying to do. But the trend is going mm-hmm. to be a younger group of people that that want to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't. I can't imagine it's a service that's going to go away. I, I've always been a little bit surprised by um, how under, in my opinion, how underutilized it is. But I I think I understand where it's coming from. So I'll give you the example. So you, you know, you mentioned the business broker. Uh, i'll see clients who they're thinking about selling a business they go hire a business broker the broker does uh, some their their own analysis they come up with some multiple a range of multiples of eBITDA almost always as their as their uh, benchmark for what the valuation should be i'm in the background scratching my head thinking i don't understand where those numbers come, numbers come from and then off they go and i think the i think the tendency is to say well we don't want to get an appraisal done we don't want a full appraisal them because if we do and then we have to disclose it in some way then we don't want to have to disclose the appraisal but it feels like there's so much there's so much more room um in those services between not talking to somebody who's an expert and getting a a, a formal finalized appraisal there's a lot in between there where there's incredible value that could be could be offered by somebody in your position to a client who's thinking about selling a business.
1: Well, when you look at the, the EBITDA number that the business brokers come up with, and again, I'm not here to criticize business brokers.
0: <laughs> Just to be clear, for all the business brokers.
1: Yeah, listening, I'm going to throw a couple of small rocks, and that's okay. <laughs> you can throw small rocks back at me. When you look at what EBITDA is, The question I always ask a client is, how much of those earnings can you put in your pocket? And the answer is zero. If you get a valuation and you get down to the cash flow, how much cash can you put in your pocket? That's what the business is worth. So they're working from a completely different perspective on on what that is. Another thing that I have found uh, with, with business brokers is they they come up with a number and I typically will find something that I would disagree with and then go back to the broker and say well look what about this that or whatever so then they will go back and fix that particular issue then they come back with the exact same number and I will ask them well how'd you do that well I forgot about whatever so they they get a commission and and I don't have a problem with these guys getting a commission but but once they're set on a number I mean that's the number for the commission that they're looking for so Uh, just be cautious if you find something wrong with what the business broker has done and then they say, oh, I forgot to do this, that, or whatever. My advice to the client is to walk away from the deal.
0: Right. Yeah. And it, yeah. And to, to, to be clear, like the business brokers provide a very valuable service. Um, Most, you know, most people who have a, a private company, they also don't know who all the potential purchasers are across the country and they don't have access to the markets. But uh, to your point, for it, to make sure that you have somebody who's willing to work with you on the proper pricing of your business in the open market, it shouldn't be something that's they're backing into based on a commission number.
1: That's correct. Yeah. And, and yeah. I see that every time. I, I was actually in a meeting several years ago with the husband and wife, uh, and they wanted to buy a interior design company for the wife, mm-hmm. and I was meeting with them in the office, and i and we're supposed to go meet the broker and the seller uh, for for a meeting. And and I told the people that I was working with. So here's what's going to happen. I said we're we're going to press them on some of these issues. And when we ask them about it, they're going to say well, we, we forgot about whatever. So that gets us back to the same number. So I told them that before we went to the meeting. We went to the meeting and we. We talked to him for a couple hours, I guess. And we got down towards the end, and and, and I was pressing him on this one other issue. And the broker finally said, well, yeah, but we forgot to do whatever. And and I just looked at the client. My clients I was working for, I just looked at him and said, what did I tell you? And that was basically the end of the meeting.
0: I can imagine. (laughs) See, you ruin everything, Richard. You that's just ruin you ruin good. everything. <laughs>
1: that's right. It's always my fault, but that's okay. That's right. They actually wound up buying a different company, just to let you know. But it was not yeah,
0: pro- probably a better one. Yeah. Well, that that's really interesting. That um I do think that scenario, buying a company or selling a company, there's I think there's a lot of people um because of the demographics of the country. Okay, just to sort of set this up. That's the context for which I'm making this statement. Because of the Democrats, de- demographics of the company, uh, or the country, excuse me, I think there are a lot of people who are in a position where they're either buying or they're selling, a, a in essence, a family-run company. In my mind, that is that is not a six-month process. That should actually be probably more like a multi-year process so they could position themselves best so that then when they go into the market, they're in the best possible position. So Assuming that my premise is correct, <laughs> then if you're willing to play along with that, um, then you know what are the sorts of things that you see that people make mistakes on in not preparing to to get ready to sell their company? Things that they, they constantly don't do that they should be doing to get the best value.
1: When, when I talk to a client about selling a company, I will tell them that one of the things we need to look for are the skeletons you have in your closet. And, and I don't know what those skeletons are. Today, so we need to take a look at that. Need to analyze the financial statements and see where the anomalies are. So what's what's happening with this thing? Once we start finding what those anomalies are, we we'll need to go back and fix those. Uh, and, and one of them may be how how you're paying for your personal expenses out of the company. And I know it happens. Okay, it's not supposed to, but it happens. So you've got the vacation home. You know, I, I, we had this one time of a, a client out in, in West Texas. They were here in the Houston area, and that's about an eight-hour drive to where their, their vacation home was, which was actually a ranch. And they were running 100% of the expenses through the company. Now, if I'm going to buy your company, I'm not going to buy your ranch. Okay, so that needs to be cleaned up. And the problem with the cleanup is... Okay, we've got the ranch, so we take the ranch off of the balance sheet, which shows how much you paid for it. Now we get into the expenses. Well, what all expenses do you have that's in there? So now we have to spend some time, and this can get to be pretty expensive, to be perfectly honest with you. What are the expenses that you're running out of there? As a seller, you want to maximize the amount of money that you're going to get on the sale. Mm -hmm. Understand that. So tell me exactly how much money you have spent on all the perks or whatever that relate to this thing well now you can't tell me but i know it was more and my perspective is well if you can't tell me what that more is i'm not going to stick my neck on the line and say just because you said it's x so you need to start getting that information cleaned up and it's not just for the vacation it's all this personal stuff that you're running Mm -hmm. through that get that you need to it's probably a five-year process because you want to go back and look at least five years when you value a company. So you're looking at probably five years minimal. Stop doing that sort of stuff. Get those financial statements so that they are clean. So they really represent what the actual business performance is and not my business and my, my personal lifestyle that is supporting. Got to get rid of that. And so now the, there's no longer a question to, to the potential buyer. Well, how much am I paying for your personal expenses that, that I know I'm not going to get any benefit for? Mm-hmm. So that that's a problem. So I I, ca- I just call it skeletons in your closet. Um, uh, and it, it takes a while to identify what those are and and get them out of there.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, if you think about the things things that could be um things that could show up in the records of your company that are not things that a buyer wants to buy.
1: Yeah. Well, we had, we had one not too long ago where the, the, the guy was running through his business. He had two kids in college. 100% of the college expenses were being deducted on his business. He bought, as the, 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 for his two sons, he had bought each of them a brand new car. So he's depreciating the car. He's deducting all the, the tuition, deducting the dorm fees. He's deducting the, the the meals for the kids while they're going to college, it was a hundred percent deal. Mm. So, and you're hundred percent right. I I don't I'm not going to pay for that sort of thing. But then the problem becomes, okay, where where do you stop so that I know that I'm not paying for something that I'm not going to get a benefit for?
0: Right, right.
1: It's, it's time for that to happen.
0: Well, on the reverse, I guess then is true too, right? For, for for a potential buyer looking at a company to purchase, to be aware that there could be things happening in that company that are lifestyle things. Not not business items; they're lifestyle items.
1: Right, exactly right.
0: And that should that needs to be stripped out of the purchase price.
1: Yes, and that that I mean, we have a whole hit list of questions that are lifestyle type of questions uh-huh. that we're going to ask the client, the seller. You know, are they're they're not showing up necessarily on the financials as a huge anomaly, but they're there. So we we ask the client, the seller, you know, do you have any of these types of things? And the answer is typically no, 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 no. And I'm thinking yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, so so what we do is we give that to a, a, a potential buyer and say, look, you you need to get a lawyer to to work up the contract for this thing. And I don't do any contract work. I am not a lawyer. Not going to touch it. It's not my deal. But what I I tell them they need to do is they need to go out and identify specifically say that you have represented that the uh, these items were not deducted and if it's found out at a later point in time that they are you need to go back and adjust the purchase price for that so it's a, that's not the best answer but it's probably the best one you can come up with.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, from from my lawyer mind, I'm thinking of ways that you would uh, you would document that it's challenging yeah. uh, to say the least, but it, it yeah. could be done. I've seen yeah. it done.
1: Yeah. And, and and again, one of the problems with all that sort of type of thing is it costs time and money to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, how much time does, does, does the buyer and or the seller want to spend trying to sort through all of that when over the last, say, five, six, seven year period, you stop doing all of that. So now it's really mm-hmm. clean. It just mm-hmm. helps dramatically.
0: You think that's that's part of the the tension though, is that there is uh, people get people get pressed by time. You know, something comes up in their life and now they're all of a sudden they're they're ready to sell the business. They didn't have five years to position the business or they start getting pressure from buyers or, or a broker or somebody to sort of to really move the process along faster than they ought to.
1: I, I do. And and that's that's something completely uncontrollable. Uh, I, I talked with a client. We haven't been engaged to do this yet, but he runs about $20 million in revenues for his business. Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier this year, he told me his wife had gone into the bathroom uh, and when she was coming out, she collapsed on the floor. She had an aneurysm uh, and then she died. Now he wants to sell his business. It was a, a real short decision there that I think he said she died in March or April, something like that. So we have, you know, four or five or six months. We're not going to have time to do all that cleanup that needs to be done. So you just have to look at it the best that you can start putting these, these caveats or covenants, whatever you want to call them, into the, the purchase agreement i.e. now we need a lawyer and you need a lawyer anyway don't don't get me wrong i'm not saying you don't but you need a lawyer anyway but now you know i've spent time going through trying to to get this cleaned up and now the lawyer has to do the same thing but the lawyer spending more time on on stuff that really wasn't necessary it is now but it could have been avoided uh and, and the clients haven't done it and then they're wondering why is this so expensive (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> they look at they always look at the lawyer fees and the appraisal fees and they don't look at those brokers fees. Exactly Right. That's yeah. somewhere on the line item that doesn't show up.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Or it gets ignored. Um, oh, that's what, yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's such a good uh, insight, though, that obviously setting aside exigencies, things can happen that you can't anticipate that what? does happen. If you don't have that scenario, then this, what I always view as like manufactured time commitments or manufactured pressing of time, usually is not in your best interest. No. Like You really want to be more deliberate if you're being wise about it. Let
1: me tell you something interesting about about manufacturing. <laughs>
0: okay.
1: Uh, I'm actually working on a, uh, a newsletter today uh, about this. When you have manufacturing, you have inventory. So you're going to buy some inventory. A lot of people, it's CPAs, because the CPA has done this, they, they go out and they take all the, the charges for the current year and they expense that and call it cost of goods sold. You're supposed to take your beginning inventory, add to that what you bought, and then you subtract the, in- the ending inventory what's left over. And so I started a little Excel schedule this morning for this to, to go through that process to tell uh, lawyers, if you see this, it's a mistake. One of the years in this example, the gross profit changes by $4 million. It's less. So now I'm looking at the financial statements of the tax returns thinking this is pretty good, when in reality, it's not. So if you have inventory, you need to make sure it's being accounted for correctly.
0: Yeah, there you go. Every every industry has little risk factors that people right. need to be, be aware of. Well, really need to hire. They need to know that there could be, and then they need to hire somebody like you who knows. How to identify them so right. not everybody has to be their own expert which they shouldn't try to be frankly
1: you know and you mentioned uh risk what winds up happening is when you do evaluation you want to project into the future what you think the revenues and expenses are going to be so we project this out five or ten years uh-huh. now we want to get it in today's dollars it's called present value mm-hmm. in order to do that we have to determine the risk <coughs> excuse me, the risk of getting those future cash flows part of that process is developing what's called a discount rate within that discount rate is a factor it's called company specific risk. When you're the, the buyer and or the seller, I think it's important that you know how that company-specific risk was developed. How we Why is it that the, the, the company-specific risk, say, 5%? The higher those risks, the lower the value. The lower the risk, the higher the value. So can I manipulate that number? You can. Very, very easy to do. Instead of using a 5% company specific risk, now we use a seven or eight, six, 9% discount rate. Mm-hmm. You as a buyer seller have no clue what's just happened to you. So I think it's important from my perspective, that the parties understand what's going on with that discount rate and why is it what it is.
0: Mm-hmm. That's uh, so good. That's such good. Imp- that's such a good tidbit.
1: Apparently, you've been there and done that before. I guess
0: you look like. Oh, it. I, I, yes, Soon I know now. about this game. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, well, I bet I think it's hard because people don't think in terms of present value. Right. And so the concept of a discount, a discount rate, is not like an everyday concept that people tend to deal with partly because it forces you, number one, to think about things like an economist and number two, to think about things projected over time and what something really is worth over a period of time and how you would figure out what it would be worth in the future. And most people are terrible about thinking about the future to begin with, let alone something like a discount rate and how it works. But yeah, that... That's such a those those standards, a lot of those standards that I see, you know, we were talking about like the brokers, how they come up with multiples of EBITDA or, you know, these discount rates that you see thrown around. You can't just take them for granted, I think. I think and and maybe this is what you're saying, and I'm I'm repackaging it here and I don't mean to just repeat what you're saying as if it's my idea. But it it seems like the idea is when you see one of those numbers, you really have to scrutinize it. Make sure it has some substance.
1: Yeah, one thing I tell my, my, my staff here, there was an old old movie, of, I think it was called Jerry Maguire, and Tom Cruise was in it, and he he keeps on saying, "Show me the money, show me the money." He screams, "Show me the money!" And uh, Ronald Reagan said, "Trust but verify." Sa- same concept from my perspective. So when when you get something. You know, from from a broker or from an appraiser like me, I don't think there's anything wrong in challenging me with, with what I did or how I did that. I personally don't think there's anything wrong with challenging an attorney. You know, you you're you're putting this in the in the agreement. What, what's this mean in real English? I mean, you put it there. Uh, you know what it means, but I don't really understand what this is about. So the, the people need to ask the questions and, and we can give them the, the the supporting reasoning behind that so they really understand it. I would hate for them to go home at night and they wake up at two or three o'clock in the morning. Uh, well, gee, my appraiser said this. My lawyer said that. Uh, I'm not sure they agree with each other, you know, and and, and all the the fees have been paid. Uh, So ask the question. So don't be embarrassed to ask the questions. I I think that the only dumb question is the one that you don't ask. So you got to be informed with all of this.
0: Yeah, it's far better to ask. And then, you know, And you don't have to, you know, you don't have to try to convince yourself of what the answer is. Once in a while, I'll get a a call. You probably get similar calls from a client and the conversation will go something like this. I'm I'll just be quiet. and I'm listening to them and they'll just be going on and on because they've been thinking about something all weekend and they'll be saying things like, and I just don't know what the answer is. I just have no idea what the answer is and how I would find the answer. And then after I let them tell me this, I will usually chime in and say, well, do you want to ask me or not? (laughs) Because I do know the answer yeah you can just call me it's okay you don't need to lose sleep over this That's i right. will just tell you the answer if you ask
1: and i will do the same thing but when a client calls i just uh just will jot down just a real short little phrase and, and they're 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 telling me everything they want me to know uh okay is it my turn to talk now <laughs> I, I don't say that but when i when you can tell that they're done okay let's go back and revisit yeah that you've got here's what those issues are here's you know multiple ways that these things should be resolved mm-hmm. but, but they've got to find from, from, from my perspective, uh, from, from an appraisal standpoint, and, and I'm a CPA, when we go to CPA school, they don't teach us how to do appraisal work. Completely different deal. You, you specialize in this. Uh, there's a designation called Certified Business Appraiser. That is the hardest designation to get on the market. So, if you're going to find somebody that can help you sort this out, you need to look at the various credentials that are out there and what it takes to get that credential. Some of these are very, very easy to get. Some of these are very, very difficult to get. And I would say also look at the years of experience that somebody has done. Uh, you know, this is this your first rodeo or not? If it's mm-hmm. not your first rodeo, uh, you know, I've, I've been doing these things since 1985. So, there's not a lot that we haven't come across, uh, which which helps. So so, so find somebody that really is qualified that can help you with this.
0: Yeah. Well, Richard, uh, you being one of those in the world, I really appreciate you spending some time with me. If, If people are trying to find you, how is the best way for them to find you? Or what is the best way for them to find you?
1: My my website is uh, www.biz, that's Bravo India Zebra with a hyphen, valuation, B A L U A T I O N dot com. You can send me an email, it's richard at bizdesvaluation.com and our phone number is 281-488-7531 and we're in the central time zone. We're in the Houston area.
0: Yeah, excellent. And I did see also on your um on your website an offer basically saying like if people are looking for uh experts, appraisal experts that they could just call and ask you and you you know lots of people. So you're you're a tremendous resource and you have great resources on your website as well, so I would recommend that to anybody who's interested in learning more.
1: Well, thank you. Appreciate that.
0: Richard, thank you again. I, I, I am so uh, humbled that you would spend or anybody would spend any amount of time with me. And uh, and I really appreciate this conversation. It's been very interesting. Thank you.
1: Well, and, and I would make the offer to you in, in your practice, if you get involved with these types of issues, and if you just want something mm-hmm. bounced off of somebody else, feel free to send me an email and give me a call.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Thank you for your time. Appreciate doing this today. Mm-hmm.
0: Hey listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealth and law. I'll see you there.